Alright everyone, it is episode number 40! Holy Jesus. We're middle-aged man. 40 is... My phone fell. But... 40 is a real thing. Like, we were only planning to do 50. Now we're on 40. I'm not even sure if the 50 stop loss is there. That's the end of season one. That's the end of season one. So... We are almost there. We are 10 episodes away from the end of season one. We are still in our respective chairs. I was gone for a little bit, but I'm back. And you heard your kid is, the kid is back. 40 episodes, man. Congrats. For what? How does it feel? To be middle-aged? Yeah. I'm good. I like your new swag. It looks like uh, software-wise spent some more money. We got a shipment in. Got a little... Uh, we got hoodies now. We got this... Fine looking hat. Might actually wear it forward. I haven't worn a hat forward since I played baseball. I'm afraid how much money. I don't want to ask how much money we spent. It was okay. It was okay. It's always it okay. It was okay by Berkey standards. Yeah. It was better than we've done in the past. Let's put it that way. Now we got more stuff. We got t shirts, hoodies, hats. If you want to catch any of this swag, go to sulfurwide.io, follow it to the academy page, and there's a shop. I like it. I might wear uh, one of the swags today on our stream. At or the, a week ago for people watching this. Yeah, yeah, a week ago. If, you know, By the time you see this, I would have already played. I've already won. I would have already shown the world. Mm. And that's on our Poker Out Loud partnership with yep. Run It Up. And let's talk about that. Uh, just as a preview of, sure. of what we're kind of planning with Poker Out Loud. So today, or a week ago, yep. it is a 1-3 No Limit Hold'em with headphones on. I was thrown in the ring as a thorn for them. You're a representative. A representative of the, of, of the brand. And talk a little bit about what the plan is. Because like originally, Poker Out Loud started as something where... You and I and our intimate group gets in the lab. Everybody throws down and the, may the best man or woman, woman win. Now it's expanded to we're doing live streams with 1-3 players. And also some high-stakes streams with some 10-25. I don't think we'll do the high-stakes streams much more regarding Poker Out Loud anyway. Mm. We'll do plenty of them. Just regular. Yeah. But I don't think we're going to do another Poker Out Loud version. It's just, it's too much. Um, but effectively, like what we came to find is that the product live isn't that bad. Hmm. It's just less educational. Right. Which is great. Because More entertainment. Now, yeah. Now it allows us to release an entertaining product for free. And then both an entertaining and educational one behind the paywall. Why do you think that the live version is less educational than the behind the pay edited version? Well, there's a few reasons. We're not getting, uh, you know, high-level coaches to play in these streams necessarily. Um, you know, we're just kind of getting people who have either never done this format before or are, you know, first or second timers to it. But effectively, they're just kind of conveying their strategy in real time to an audience. And that's difficult if you haven't practiced it or if you're not in the uh, teaching arena frequently. Um, but it's still very entertaining to watch. Yeah. So I think like when you remove the layer of everything you say has to be perfect mm -hmm. and just allow people to say like, just speak your thoughts of what's going on right now mm -hmm. in real time, uh, for the viewer at home, that's nice because now you don't need the announcer or the commentator to kind of fill in the gaps, the broadcast. Well, that's a journalistic. That that's what word? I tell my mom I do. Yeah, well, you're making it sound like you're a part of the journalism team when you're not. Well, you know, talent comes in different ways in 2020. Sure, sure. I'm a broadcaster. We're broadcasting on right YouTube. now to the world. Yeah, that's where the, that's the biggest platform in the world. The biggest broadcasting platform in the world is YouTube. Not New York Times. Okay, uh, I would <laughs> I would argue that uh, that Basic Cable would have a fight there. Basic Cable gonna be gone in 10 years. Sure, doesn't so, mean they're not still the biggest. YouTube's the king. Google, what up? Yeah, where's Super Bowl at? <laughs> and it's coming to Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but no, agreed. Do you find any pressure as a as a you know as a major instructor yourself to get it right in real time on the live stream? Well, I didn't uh, 
and and no definitely not on the live stream um when i came up with the idea it, it wasn't with this i it wasn't with this like idealistic viewpoint where i'm naive enough to think that i'm flawless in my thinking mm. and i think that that's a real bullshit narrative that a lot of the training spaces try to push forward um we're gonna get a lot wrong and i think if you watch enough not not to not to point to run it once as a diluted product because i think it's one of the best on the market but there's a lot of speak and play type of videos yeah yeah. and if you watch those with a critical eye you're going to find a pile of mistakes because that's exactly how this game is is played it's it's through the human lens and we're all going to make a lot of flawed uh assumptions and and decisions but even then it's even it's somewhat edited in a in a way whereas like the the coach can choose to not put out the video like if right. he was to re- speak and play or, you know, and then he's just like played awful. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He just says like, okay, that one's not coming out. Right. And re- record a new one. You yeah. Know? In an environment like this, like you just don't get that luxury, which I think is kind of nice. Yeah. I'm pretty unapologetic about that stuff. I, I think it's really critical uh, in a learning environment specifically to demonstrate where we're all fallible. And I know that that puts me under fire a lot where it seems as though there's barely any gap between myself and some random 50 cent a dollar player on two plus two mm. who knows baseline GTO. But at the end of the day, that's a lot of smoke and mirrors. There's a reason why, you know, I'm 17 years established and that person's still trying to come through the ranks. So, uh, and that's, that's, that's not to be said um, from an arrogant standpoint, like, I'm not saying that the person criticizing me isn't capable of achieving where I'm at and then beyond. Mm. All I'm saying is that it takes a lot of time, effort, and uh, like intimate knowledge of this game to rise to certain ranks. So to think that like once you achieve a certain level of success that you now no longer make mistakes is crazy. Does what? that 50 cent a dollar player, like, th- does it... Does it scare you in a way? Like, does it bother you that people are coming for you? Like, no. See, we, to me, it's different. We have very different. Yeah, I know. That's why I wanted to bring it up. Like, to me, I don't like that dude. Like, I, I don't, I, I, I don't, it's not that I want to keep people down. Is that I don't, like, I, I feel like I'm always like, like, like punching them down. Like, yeah, but I think like we have very different. I feel like you want to bring people up to your level and like you all share. Because I, I, I have no problems like battling like i think battling is the way that you become the best in this game yeah and uh you know i've been beaten down a lot in scenarios where uh i I put myself in tough arenas see like i appreciate what you do with me where like you teach me like the way and like you you really help me grow in in the game and stuff but like i don't know if i could do that for somebody because like i think i'm like maybe like i just don't well i think the difference is is that you've had sources to learn from yeah. where I've had to figure everything out on my own. Mm-hmm. So I've always had a lot of security in knowing what I don't know, if that makes sense, or knowing that I don't know. I see, yeah. Right, so like I've navigated for 17 years through this gradient spectrum where uh, effectively everything's blurry. You, you just never have any real clarity over anything, right? Mm-hmm. And as technology advanced and as I became more knowledgeable, I would gain clarity over certain things that caused me problems in the past. Right. But even moving forward, it was always just like, okay, like we're all kind of feeling our way through the dark here. And I just feel a little bit more confident in being able to say, I can't see, but uh, I'm going to try to navigate this universe anyway. Whereas like for you, you've been down a path that's promised answers from day one. Right, right. No matter who it was, you yeah, know, yeah. Wh- whether you're talking about run at once or individual coaching or whatever. And uh, I-, I think a lot of that kind of like breeds this insecurity where you're just like, fuck, somebody else is learning an answer that I haven't learned yet. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And like, that's just going to catapult them past me. And you see it happening all the time where it's just like somebody who's been grinding for like a year and a half in the basement somewhere running solves nonstop is now beating super high rollers. Mm-hmm. But then they just like vanish too. Yeah, that's true. So you you have this level of security in in your 
in your mindset based on the fact that you learned everything you learned experientially. Largely, and, yeah. And because of that, you think that will carry you or, or you know that will carry you through moving forward as well. Yeah, I mean, like, so the experience is only worth, it's it's largely worth a pint of piss, to be honest, because it's so biased. You're going hard today. Well, it's, yeah. it, it's you know, I, I'm a realist. It's anecdotal in nature, right? But experience shapes us uh, in a way where we're all going to be biased no matter what. So uh, my experience is going to shape my bias different than your experience is going to shape your bias. Mm. The more the more aware we are of that, the more self-aware we are of that, the more we can start to lean into technological tools to kind of like flesh out those biases and challenge some preconceived notions. So for me, it's like, I think my experience has led me to a point of being uh, self-aware enough to challenge my own confidence levels, I guess. Uh, so really like the, the longer I'm in my career, the, the less confident I am that anything is quote unquote correct. And the less critical I am of like overlooking somebody else's play and just being like, that's terrible. You know, like 2009, everybody's the worst. You just watch anything. You're just like, that guy sucks. He sucks so bad. It was like when I first met you. Like, but I thought everybody was really yeah, good. Yeah, you're like, everybody's really good. I'm like, everybody sucks. Yeah. And the truth is, is that both of those statements were probably simultaneously true. We knew so little about the game that everybody probably did suck. But there were probably a lot of people who were able to traverse their suckage more than the rest. That brings me to something that I think... See, this is why I'm the host of the show. Because I know how to transition things. Mm, you know, like... It, you and I were on our ride back from Los Angeles, and we put on a podcast, Tim Ferriss podcast, and they had Josh Waitkins, Waitkins, yep. right? Yep. And he was talking about learning through chaos. And in the example he gave, effectively, they were playing a chess match, him and his best friend, and they started with three incorrect moves in the chess match. Yeah. And then they solved from there, mm -hmm. right? And... Initially, they disagreed on, is this even important to think about? Because, like, we're never going to make these three incorrect moves and then take it from there. And then his friend said, like, no, this is, like, fascinating, like, how to solve this problem set. You coming from a 2009 uh, vantage point of poker, where it's, like, there was no, like, correct play, like, approved, solved play. Probably just a bunch of mistakes and then landing in a spot, right? Yeah. What do you see in terms of the value, both in the context of what Josh said, as well as like in your experience coming from that uh, problem in poker back in the day? Yeah. So just to frame that out a little bit more, the way it was or the, the way that they were working, I don't know very much about chess, but I can regurgitate what I heard him yeah. say. Uh, it was some some sort of like um, bastardized version of a Sicilian defense versus three incorrect opens so they were actually studying it from defending against the three ah, incorrect okay, okay. opens not actually making the three incorrect opens but uh Waitskin, who's um you know self-admittedly uh kind of a, a technician in a sense like he likes to drill down on things he likes to uh be able to see both the short and long-term uh, reasoning behind something and his partner who i can't recall at the time that he was he was working with mm -hmm. um was kind of the big picture guy and he was basically saying like we don't know what we don't know so let's examine this and see what it flowers into because yeah. we might discover some things right right and that's the nature of these infinite games um the, these games that have more moves than we can conceptualize a game like poker that's you know rather never ending in nature it if you only parse the game tree down to um pre-approved moves then what ultimately happens is you create this sort of like faux equilibrium where cooperatively all environments agree upon certain metrics and methodologies uh as far as like strategy is concerned and what will ultimately happen is the person who is smart enough studied enough and puts in enough hard work can become a disruptor by recognizing this like thread line that's consistent in all strategy, but isn't truly optimal, right? It's only optimal in the sense that everybody's cooperating and agreeing to play under the same parameters, creating a sort of vacuum. Uh, Andre and I spoke a lot about this as well. Um, you know, he brought up Magnus Carlsen, who who like believes in uh, studying like lost leaders. So effectively, the same thing, like making some 
disapproved opening moves, mm -hmm. knowing that it's going to lead to potential chaos down the line. Okay. And that's all that this example really is. It's creating a chaotic environment that you haven't pre-planned for in order to effectively train into some of the worst case scenarios. Uh, and I think that helps people. Like, how do you think that becomes a skill? Like, how do you, how does like working in chaos and solving through the chaos become a skill set? Well, particularly in live poker, you're always in a chaotic environment, right? There, there is no real consistency to live environments. You're going to see a lot of shit that you couldn't no. pre-plan for. It's just like two, three limps. It's like, wait, what? Yeah. And the, <laughs> and the arrogance is that because I'm a studied player through this certain lens, my adaptability to any sort of chaos thrown my way will be significantly higher than those around me. But that's, I think, where the argument falls short. Because what ultimately happens is people who have played in the live realm for a significant amount of time and have experience there just recognize and are trained into the habits that the environment will fall into, right? Mm. So, for instance, Nick and I had this long debate about do fish over Bluff River. Okay. And uh, my strong argument was in the live realm, no. And his strong argument was data says they do. Data and in the live realm? Data in the oh, online realm. The live and he's trying to say that they they uh, go over one-to-one, one one, right? So it's like if we plop him down in a live arena and he starts to see all this shit that he hasn't seen really in any of his online games. Multiple limps, cold calls of three bets. I mean, he could just see your uh, 2018 live play where you just called every river. Right. And they always have. Yeah, it. just get wrecked. <laughs> like right. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, if, if you sit him down and he start and you start to see all the chaos that ensues, right? Pots aren't heads up the way you would expect them to be. Right. People aren't mindful of their ranges the way you would expect them to be. There's cold calling of three bets. There's limping, there's limp raising. There's all this like chaotic stuff that's happening that has a massive impact on the data points because we haven't studied any of this. Right. And ultimately what happens is. The person who's in that arena every single day, who's like, oh, I've seen this a million times before. They haven't seen it a million times, but they've seen it thousands of times right, for sure. Right, right. Recognizes how people are imbalanced through these through these transactions, right? Absolutely. And it becomes very simple for the live guy to say, actually, fish drastically under bluff the river. Now, I can't prove that to you. I don't have enough data, but my experience says I've called in enough situations to recognize that like they just have it. You know, Brokus has this like ongoing Twitter bit where it's like hashtag they always have it. Mm. And it's it's really relatively true because the final po decision point in uh, in the limit where it matters the most, where the most bets go in, where the highest win rate available is, is the river. Why do you think they always have it? Uh, so I think it's two reasons. I, I think one, um, there's a certain social element to live poker mm -hmm. that conditions people to be embarrassed to have to like show a losing hand or to pull off a bluff and get called. Yeah. There, there's a certain sense of... I mean, everybody's experienced it where you bluff, get called, and your ears just turn like beat red. Mm -hmm. You're just so ashamed. Right. It's, it's like getting caught in a lie, like in a big lie. Right. You know? Right. And that's a byproduct of the vast majority of the live realm being unstudied. So they don't know why they're bluffing. They just know they need to bluff. They try to pull it off. They get caught. And now it's, it's some cross between like embarrassment, shame, you know, all of these things that uh, we're preconditioned to avoid. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that makes them less courageous. Uh, and then secondarily, I just think it's a huge risk. So I think ultimately what happens in the live realm is people's ranges funnel rather quickly and you just see them overfolding at some degree on flop in turn, yeah. leaving them with only really good hands on river. That way it simplifies their decision-making process once all the cards have come out. I agree. I, I agree with a lot of the statements of in live poker, like, there can be live players that are not as technically sound as some other players in the game, mm -hmm. but their win rate in the game is higher than the even more technically sound players. Right. Simply because they under they just understand like these huge massive exploits that exist. Whereas like, for example, certain certain numbers just don't come out unless they're valued bets, right? Or right. because like certain bets just won't come out. Certain players just don't three bet a linear range and these players know that it, you know certain things like that just are invaluable in, in live games especially when you take the cap off the game well the whole thing about live and why i play the way i play why you see like guys like justin young and others who are deemed action play the way they play is that times the great equalizer so the second that we put a running clock on a stagnant game 
suddenly like we have to be more concerned about each individual hand we play more so than uh trying to get out the most uh or or like trying to make all positive EV decisions interesting over massive volume right so why why do you think that is because the the way poker is taught and even the way we teach poker is a decision is plus EV because it's always long-term plus EV. Yeah. And a decision that's minus EV is just minus EV. So now we're, it seems like you are introducing a, a third path where it's like, well, because there's a time constraint, we can access different portions of the tree that might cause a mistake from, from villain that now may introduce us into a plus EV spot that may be even greater than what we expect. Right. So understand the framework from which we're coming from, right? Uh, calling a calling a raise with queen eight suited in a vacuum mm -hmm. is going to be very negative EV. Correct. But that's because of two reasons. One, the construction of the opener's range is going to be equity dense and well, it's going to be well constructed. Let's just say that. Yeah. And then two, the strategy that the solver will employ with that range moving forward is going to be perfect. Yeah. Now, if we dilute it all the way down to a weak player is opening, it's going to be difficult now for them not to make errors. And if we have some sort of clairvoyance over what the errors are that occur, now our cards matter a lot less. So suddenly what was a negative EV call pre can turn into a long-term plus EV call because of how many flop turn and river mistakes are going to be made for huge, huge bets. And effectively what happens or what I'm, I'm supposing happens is that the live environment is so massively under bluffed as a whole, right? I can't necessarily pinpoint the street. I, I firmly believe river is under bluffed. I also think pre-flop in a lot of ways is under bluffed yeah, yeah. by the field, yeah. not necessarily by individual actors. And we can parse that out and like play differently against those who fall on one side of the spectrum versus the other. But because the realm as a whole bluffs very poorly and does so at a low enough frequency, it allows us now to insert ourselves in more pots aggressively, knowing that we're going to be the ones who are bluffing at the highest frequency and thus over-realizing our equity, over-capitalizing on our equity because the natural uh defense to an under bluffed or, or or sorry the the natural um occurrence from an under bluffed arena is to also overfold right how do you, so obviously like i agree but i'm trying to you know even as myself as like an instructor trying to figure out because i struggle with this and like some of my and some of my better students are just like i don't understand how you can do these things and it's like how do you teach these these things because it's like when we tell someone like okay you can call with queen eight suited you know the the degree of of amount of things that need to be correct under the assumption under their under the, your opponent's frequencies yeah you know have to be in line and as well as like you have to make very good decisions so yeah. how do you balance teaching well constructed ranges and also then taking the few select people that you believe can potentially do this and figuring out how to teach. Right. So like, I don't think giving permission is ever the right approach. Okay. I would never say like, Oh, you can call this hand or you can't call this hand. I, I think that's a very poor approach okay. because you start to create rigid boundaries, mm -hmm. uh, through which now they're kind of minimized as far as like how much thinking they're going to do beyond that. And I think that's really problematic. Yeah. Really, this is just a touch and go kind of thing where it's like we need to be examining individual spots and we need to be examining like the types of mistakes we recognize are occurring uh, in our environments. The easiest way to test that is to just like sit down with a solver and node block the shit out of it. Yeah. But that takes a lot of knowledge of the technology. And it's a lot more difficult because now you're really forcing your assumptive bias into the machine. Yeah. But it can like conceptually flesh out areas through which uh, opponents do become rather vulnerable. So I think in, uh, I think it was in my exploitative matrix course, I actually uh, demonstrated the queen 10, eight uh, two-tone board and uh, did some node locking with it to the point where um, if you take certain actions with 
portions of your range. I don't recall off the top of my head, so I don't I don't want to speak to this like too authoritatively. Mm -hmm. But I recall that like if you take certain actions uh, with your range splits. So you you uh, when when you're hyper aggressive, I can't remember if it was through a check raising range uh, or through a bet bet lens, whatever the case may be. Uh, it may have been through a check raise bet lens on a on a turn brick. Anyway, if if you if you want to know more, check out the course. But the whole point was the proper dis the, the equilibrium defense was to start folding ace queen as the defender. Yeah, and like crazy. no one's doing that. No, no way. Nobody is folding ace queen to like one bet. Yeah. On yeah. Queen 10 8 2. I remember it was through the betting lens and it was king queen. It was like you. It was it was through the betting lens, and and the opponent was supposed to just fold king queen on the flop, which is insane. No, one, right? No, no. It was also happen. all ace queen that didn't have a backdoor. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I just so, remember like a lot of king queen folding. Right, right, right. And this had something to do with like the way that we were constructing uh, our, our our splits, and it had something to do with like node locking, um, you know, our frequencies, and uh, you know, giving each each opponent like a reasonable range. So obviously that adjusts a ton depending on how wide or narrow the ranges are. But the whole point is that like you can start making these assumptive, um, th these biased assumptions and you can node lock them down to a point where it's like, okay, well, if this, then that kind of logic occurs and I can recognize that my pool just isn't doing what this suggests, we found an exploit. How did you do it before Zolvers? Because you were still doing it. Right. right, like you were like the main one of the main proponents of exploitative, like hyper exploitative play. I I, I think I traversed the psychology realm a lot more, so it was way less of figuring out like what's the precise exploit, and way more of thinking about like where are human beings most exploitable, mm -hmm. and it's at the greatest point of risk. So it was just figuring out like where does this person buckle as far as monetary risk is concerned. And how do I get him there in a situation where my range seems to favor the board? I was watching something on Netflix. It was uh, by Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah. And it was like the, the Goop Lab. And they'd like try all these things. And one of the episodes was the Iceman. And for those of you that don't know the Iceman, it's, uh, I don't remember his name actually, but I do know him as Iceman. He's like goes into water and all that stuff. And I was thinking about how that translates into, into like the psychology of poker and stuff, because effectively what they were talking about was like training in, in ice water and, and all these things. And just like how that calms down your, your, your nervous system, or maybe it's the nervous system, maybe it's a different system. And I was remember, I was thinking about that in poker and and just how you know we speak about this from time to time on the podcast, but they effectively like they brought it up on on like a major Netflix show, and I thought it was like super interesting because it was them talking about how ice therapy or like cold therapy and any of these things is not only healing in terms of like your body and stuff like that but also like increases like a certain amount of resistance that your body can hold in terms of panic mm -hmm. in terms of just like fear well we yeah. talked about this also in the pod yeah yeah well, that's what i'm saying like the whole <clears throat> week kind of like i was i was in that mode of of trying to figure out how to improve certain areas of my life and and i would Honestly, I was just by myself watching the the Gwyneth thing, and I didn't ex even expect this to come up. Yeah, but it did, and I thought it was really interesting. Uh, so yeah, go ahead, finish your thought. So uh, effectively, like um, the parasympathetic system or the the limbic system is our fight or flight, and it's trainable, right? Uh, obviously, it's conditioned by our environment. So mm -hmm. certain things are going to trigger it. Certain things uh, you'll feel calm about. Uh, and the idea with these stressors, like heat stress, cold stress. Uh, whatever the case may be, um, Wim Hof yo uh, Wim Hof breathing is another one. So it's effectively like lack of oxygen stress. Mm -hmm. These stressors can help you uh, basically increase that resistance point through which your uh, limbic system is engaged. So you know if you jump into 35 degree water, the first thing that's going to happen is your limbic system is going to kick in. So all of the signs of that's going to occur. Right, you're going to uh, 
start having shallow breaths. You're going to have uh, a rapid heart rate. You're going to have uh, these other systems shutting off. Like, um, you know, you, you'll, you're, you'll stop producing saliva. You'll stop, uh, this is extreme, but like your hair and nails stop growing. Like all of the energy basically is being focused strictly on uh, your stress release. So cortisol, um, fight or flight, whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, through breathing techniques, you can lessen this. And through resistance training, so effectively just continually doing it uh, repetitively, you'll start to build up a, um, a like like, like a, a sort of tolerance. Kind of, yeah. Where now that initial shock of hitting the water just immediately dissipates through one or mm-hmm. two deep breaths. So I find this interesting as it pertains to poker. There's the first as it pertains for the podcast. And the reason I thought about this was because... I remember greatly when I would like peel aces and like get like a warm feeling oh, yeah. here. Yeah, it's yeah. like, oh, and now when I look at it, like I don't get it as much, but it's probably through, just through years of like getting aces. You know, guys, I run good. Sure. Um, but I think it's because you're, you know, you're going to play. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to be in a fight. You have aces. So yeah. there's no way out. Right. Like, you're right. in this now. Yeah. Right. And the fear of the unknown, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you don't know what the board's going to be. You don't know if you're going to get sucked out. You don't know if you're going to... Well, you're emotionally it. invested in the hand, too. Correct, correct. So, it was interesting seeing it. At now, now I remember, it was like, his name was Wim Hof, right? Yeah. And the level of resistance that his body had now was incredible. Like, they injected him with, like, a disease. Like, it, like, like a virus. And nothing happened to him. And it was like, that's crazy. That's like, wild. yeah. So if you guys want to see it, it was on Netflix. It was on the Goop Lab. It was like, they injected him like straight. Like they showed it, like yeah. injected him with like virus, nothing. And then they inject someone else. He got sick. Like, sure. it's like, sure. it's like, so with poker, I think that it relates because we're always in this like fight or flight situation. And a lot of times I remember people saying like, oh, I'm glad he, this guy three bet so I could just fold. It's like, okay, like you were scared. Yeah. You know, like it, a little bit of you was scared because you know you were about to engage. And so I thought that was really cool. I, I want to try. I know you're into like the cold therapy stuff. I want to try to like commit to that just to see how that relates to not only physiologically, like the brown fat and stuff like that, but also just how it relates to me engaging in poker. Not only because honestly, like I feel like I'm too engaged. Like yeah. I, I'm just like always fight. Yeah. I'm just like okay, like, like let's go. Yeah. You know. But like I feel like sometimes I need to just like chill, and then like level off my my fight or flight. And and I think it's like a little bit of a chip on my shoulder or like ego or or trying to prove something. So I, I'm always like engaged. Like I always want to like prove something. You know. Yeah. And I think like maybe the cold therapy can, I don't know, like turn it off a little bit. And I think long term, that's that helps. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really even get into cold therapy for the the health benefits of it. Uh, I recognize there are some, but I'm also getting into like a 40 degree pool. Mm. So I'm not really, I'm not really benefiting the way that you would from taking a, a five or 10 minute ice bath. I'm hopping in a cold pool for like 90 seconds a day, but I'm doing it as like literally the first thing I do when I wake up. So for me, it was just a test of discipline. Mm. It was like, you know, at a time when I started, it was when I started this grit challenge in like September. And I was just at a point where I was like at my breaking point and, uh, it got worse before it got better. But for me, like whenever that stuff happens, it just becomes all about controlling the controllable. And it's like, my mind is on the brink of giving up because I've just like, you know, loaded too much on my plate. Uh, I'm allowing like relationships to fly out of control. I'm allowing, you know, my careers, to, to kind of like dictate too much of my day and all this other stuff. It's like, I just need to sink back to what I know best. And that's like discipline regimen. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, I'm going to set an alarm every day, 7 a.m. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to hop in this cold pool. And then from there, I'm going to sauna. And then it's going to be, you know, rest of the day, gym, work, mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, and I'm going to do that until I start to feel better. And it's like the first week was awful. You know, it's like you hop in and it's a lot of that like deep breaths or shallow breathing actually. And just like, you're just like, this is miserable, but it just continually gets better. And 
uh, it's a conscious decision to let it get better. Weight skin kind of speaks to this where he's like, you can do cold therapy in one of two ways. You can do it in a way where uh, you lean into the fight or flight and it now becomes like a, a sort of like controllable trigger mm-hmm. where when urgency meets, you rise to the challenge because like you could just engage your cortisol mechanisms and like you're just ready to rock or you can learn to be calm in chaos. And like, that was much more of what I was trying to lean into is just like, look, man, my life is chaos right now and I need to find the calm. So I'm going to do it through this like torturous thing, but it's going to set me up better every single day and every single month moving forward. And like, I love it. I'm, I, I've still been doing it. Um, I'm, I'm doing it now cycling with sauna. So, yeah. uh, when I first started my sauna sessions were like maybe 15, 20 minutes long. Uh, I'm up to like 45 now and the days that I don't work out. So two or three days a week, uh, I'm doing like exercise stress replication, which is effectively just like two or three long sauna sessions Mm. with cold therapy in between. So we're going to Austin. Yeah. And the reason I bring this up is because I tend to struggle with trips when it comes to staying on course with fitness and nutrition and yeah. hours on, you know, things like that. So I'm going to commit to something on the vlogcast. I will next vlogcast. I will give an inside look on what my regimen looks like. You know what I eat, what my workout is going to be that weekend when I'm out there, things like that. That way I have something to both show and also be accountable, right? Like, If I show nothing, you guys know I fucked up, right? And for those that are curious of what I'm doing, how am I approaching things like that, they get to see it, hopefully, if I don't fuck up. Yeah. Uh, So I'm looking forward to Austin. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on there. Uh, Yeah, just real quick, I want to touch on something. Uh, So I was listening to Jocko today. He did a takeover of the Tim Ferriss pod. Wow. So it's just an ask me anything, basically. Okay. Uh, one of the questions was... And they list, like, it's like a list yeah, of things? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So one of the questions was, how do I develop discipline? Mm. And obviously, in typical Jocko fashion, he goes, just be disciplined. Yeah. Which is, like, so great on so many levels, but it's also just, like, a nightmare when you're the person struggling. I hate those answers. Though. Right. Like, oh, how do you develop discipline? Good. It's literally, <laughs> it's literally the most optimal answer you could be given, though. It's like, just make the decision... Yeah. To become disciplined. Your mind but is it's, but it's it's terrible at the same time. Let me explain. It's like, how am I how do I how how do I get happy, Berkey? It's like just be happy. It's like what? That's but it, but it's true. Like there there's there's a phrase uh from This Is Water that David Foster Wallace leans on and says, the the mind is uh I'm gonna botch this, but it's something to the effect of like the mind is a good slave but a terrible master. Mm. Uh, and it's true. It's like if you don't take the time and effort, like if you let your mind slip and kind of guide you without actually like saying like, no, this is this is what's best for me. Uh, think of it this way. Um, think of your cravings for food at noon compared to like 7 p.m. Oh, for sure. It's not seven, even close. Seven is crazy. Yeah, it's just like the things that you desire towards the end of the day as like you allow your guard down on your discipline it's so much worse than like at noon whenever you're just like, okay, this is what I'm I'm after for the day. Like mm-hmm. these are my goals. Mm-hmm. It's so easy to think clearly, right? Yeah, yeah. And all of that's rooted in discipline. So his advice was obviously just make the decision to be disciplined. But he went further. He said, Thank God. Look, the <laughs> the the way to do this is to create action, right? Mm-hmm. So create actionable items. Every night before bed, make a list of everything you need to achieve the next day and the the methods through which you'll achieve it so things as simple as eating right you'll you'll put down you need to eat because you need to eat right and then you need to list out like well what do i want to consume and at what portions of the day am i going to consume it right and the same thing for like like preparing for success yeah effectively so he's like you write that list down you set your alarm and then you go to bed and when the alarm goes off you just get out of bed like, don't even think twice. Don't hit the snooze. Don't even turn the alarm off. Just immediately get yourself out of bed and put your gym clothes on. And from that point forward, like, you'll just start to execute on the list. Yeah. And it's it, it's kind of like doubling back to what I was talking about with, like, uh, jumping in the cold water. It's like, 
if you really want to find yourself rooted in a discipline approach to life, and this is this isn't as constraining as it sounds, right? I think people hear this and they're just like, "How fucking miserable, man!" Mm. That you have to live your life on this like army protocol where you are just a drill sergeant to your own mind. But it's like it's not that, right? Like I'm disciplined in all facets, and yeah, I fail a lot, and that's why uh, you know things go to shit. But when I'm really locked in, that's when I'm able to give the best of myself. So yeah. my, my relationships aren't the best when I'm undisciplined. Right. They're the best when I'm fucking locked in because I allocate appropriate amount of time for those people in my life. And I allocate discipline towards fun as well and discipline towards uh, social activities and all this other stuff. It's I think I, I agree. I think what it is is not necessarily... I think people hear the word discipline and they have a bad connotation for yeah. it. What it is, is that you are like a tree, right? And there's all these branches to you. And you, for you to be happy, all these branches have to be taken care of. And for that to happen, you need a strong root. And that root for you is literally just saying like, I have all these things I need to take care of. All these branches and all these branches are who I am. So they all need attention. Mm -hmm. And for you to all get it, for them all to be attention, uh, for them all to have attention, they they need their respective, you know, list of, of, of things to take care of. And that's part of like the discipline. If you don't have that discipline to take care of all your branches, those branches start to fall off and then the tree, you know, eventually dies. Right. And and the, the thing is, is that like if you. So if we're if we're talking about this in the sense that the the trunk is discipline, mm. if you remove the trunk, then you just have a bunch of fallen branches and nothing else, like like nothing else comes of it, right? So if you're not disciplined, you don't suddenly get to have more fun mm. and experience more things and be a better you or yeah. anything along those lines, right? You're just left with utter chaos. You're left picking up a bunch of branches and trying to figure out what the fuck to do with them all, because now, all of a sudden, everything seems chaotic. You don't have enough time in the day. You don't have enough energy to put forth towards all of these different endeavors. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways, like having some sort of structure or regiment really allows you to parse off like what's important and what's not. I posted this question yesterday on Instagram and it was a rhetorical question. I didn't really, you know, I got answers. It's not I, rhetorical. I, I thought a lot about this. No, but it was rhetorical to the world. I didn't want to post the answers. I just wanted people to just ruminate on the question because I think it's really interesting. So the question was, and I stole this also from, from Tim because I thought it was a pretty fascinating podcast with- I with, think it was Brene Brown's uh, yeah. question. Um, and it was, if you had two years to live, like you know in two years your life is over and you were to die in perfect health, what would you accomplish or want to accomplish in those two years. Mm. And I thought it was fascinating because we all want things. We all want to accomplish things, but there's never a sense, or at least often, there's not a sense of pressure to accomplish those things. Right. And I really just like ruminated on that thought ever since I heard it. I was like, okay, if I had two years, perfect health, what do I accomplish? And I was just like, wow, like that's a really deep question. Because there's both a sense of urgency to it and also a sense of, well, what exactly are you doing? Like, what, why does why do you need that pressure? Why are you not doing it now? Yeah. Type of thing, right? right. Like, like if you have more than two years, why does that extra time now cause a delay? Mm -hmm. And for me specifically, I was just like, man, like, they're speaking to me. Like, because, like, I have all these things I want to accomplish, but... Why, why now when given this finite time, am I feeling like I need to do it? Did you have an answer? I had a lot of answers. I, I felt as if my first, my first initial answer was just like, okay, like I, I need to get back to a place where I want to see what my body feels like, not in this current state where it was like, I've been at this like lethargic state for a very long time mm -hmm. and if if i was to die in two years i don't want to like i never felt how i did at one point and i don't know what what ceiling i'm at so 
I, I thought about that in terms of optimizing my body to a point where let's see what's what what is this capable of, right? Um, so I thought about that. And then a lot of times, like, you know, while I was thinking about this, all the answers were coming in. And it was like travel, 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 travel. And some of the answers were, I want to help people. And then, but that made me ask a secondary question. It's like, okay, you want to help people, but you're not defining like, you know, and it, it's, it's an Instagram thing. So like, who knows, right? There probably, maybe it goes, but like, I thought there was a couple of major, there was three major answers, right? It was travel. It was helping people both outside and your family. And then the third one was in that same vein. But the second one I thought about a lot because I was like, okay, helping people, but how? Because that's that's a big thing, right? It's like it's like helping people can mean many things. So I, I, I thought about that and I didn't really have an answer. And then the first one I didn't really think about much because it's like travel, okay, but travel why? Right. You know? Like and I was thinking, okay, maybe people don't think they've experienced enough. Yep. Right. And it's like they haven't experienced enough. And maybe travel is something that will reciprocate them having experiences that they feel as if they lived enough. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the second one, I think, was in terms of helping people, maybe it was like tied with some sort of like a legacy where it was if they help someone, that person remembers them when they're gone. And now they kind of continue to live. So those were the two major answers. Um, there was one more answer, but I unfortunately can't think about it. But for me, I don't, I don't have an answer yet. And, and I'm surprised there wasn't more of like, uh, find someone to love me no. or, or something along those lines. No, I, I was, I was expecting that answer because especially like given my last podcast, I was expecting like some sort of that answer, but there wasn't, it was a lot of travel, a lot of travel mm. and a lot of helping people. And, you know, it could be biased based on the people that follow me, but those were the two major answers. And I, I thought about that. I don't necessarily have an answer. Uh, I I know the first answer was me wanting to feel better about myself, not because of my health, because I'm going to die anyway. Right. right? We're, we're dying in two years. Yeah. But just because I want to see where, like, how happy or like how much happier I could be mm-hmm. under a different machine. Right. What did you think about so I thought about this for a couple of days and uh, I bounced it off Danielle and ironically we had the same answer. Okay. Uh, and I think I kind of understand why. And I imagine that a lot of people fall under one of these three categories where for her and I, we, we fell under all three mm. and it's experience, empathy, and legacy. Mm-hmm. I think those are the three largest voids that people are concerned with fulfilling and dependent upon uh, you know, your personality type, how big the void is in your life. Uh, one of them may take greater priority over the other. For me, like it's all three that I would want to like put all of my effort into. And I think largely it's because at least the first two, uh, experience and empathy, it's, it's kind of like my virtues now, Mm -hmm. um, by which like I want to go through life and granted, I'm probably much more empathetic than I am experiential. Mm. Uh, there are a lot of experiences that like just don't move the needle for me. Like traveling the world as a broad statement doesn't do anything for me. Traveling the world with a purpose, however, right, I'd be all for it. Like nothing would make me more excited to visit a bunch of new places and have like literal purpose behind each and every one. So I think that's where like legacy is so critical in order to tie it all back. So I asked her, like, what would you do if you had literally two years left to live? Uh, and she goes, I would travel and write a book. And I go, that's amazing. Like, I literally have those two things mm. Mm. Uh, outlined. But I think that it has to be all-encompassing. So for me, if I had literally just two years left to live, finite amount of time, and I need to figure out how to make the most out of every single second, what I would want to do is I would want to get a collection of those who were closest to me that were free to... Uh, kind of like step away from their lives for a minute, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and what I mean by that is like they're not married with kids right, and like right. they, they don't have these priorities elsewhere. So effectively what I would want is I would want to take a small group 
you know, specifically like my nephew and then others that, uh, I love care about, but more, more importantly, I think I can make a huge impact on their life beyond, beyond the grave effectively. Uh, and I would want to get that little brain trust together and I would want to travel the world with the purpose of, uh, kind of documenting this entire two year experience, uh, like through the framework of a book. So I don't, I don't know what that would look like. I, I don't know, like, you know, what the purpose of the book would be. Maybe it's philosophical, maybe it's experiential, maybe it's, uh, you know, psychological. I don't really know. Maybe it's all of those things. Right. But what I do know is that, uh, the purpose would be largely that it would be like a mission, right? So it would be traveling the world with the purpose of experiencing all these different things, but in in the midst of it all, leaving our footprint where mm-hmm. we we left the place better after we were gone yeah. than prior to getting there. Yeah, I think a lot of people have that where they they want to leave the world better and leave an impact, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I, I honestly still don't have an answer. It, it's it was such a deep question for me because I feel like I'm in this like weird portion of my life where like I'm still. I'm still figuring out like what it is that like I, I want to achieve in, in life. And so I, I just have it in there. Like it just continually ruminated. But I did want to share it because I thought it was such a like deep question. Not only because of it asks like really important question, but also it asked, at least for me, it asked like, why not? Why aren't you doing it? Yeah. Like type of thing. Yeah. yeah. So, but that, that, Right. So that that's a critical question. Mm-hmm. But like I look at it and it's like if I had those two years, I know for a fact I would never miss a day at the gym. I mm-hmm. would never like I would never move off of the core that is me because that would be the only thing that would get me through the chaos, right? Knowing full and well that like each and every single day is one day closer to death. I would have to have that like hardcore rock Mm. that was just like, okay, I literally have, you know, 300 days left and I'm a better version of me today than I was yesterday. I have 299 days left. If you, so if you, if you were given the power to know the day you would die, would you want to know? Arrogantly? Probably. Mm. Because I feel like I could do more with the time, but from a human standpoint, no. Because it's, it's just like too psychological. It's horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Like it'd be so hard not to mentally crack like with a countdown calendar effectively. Yeah. Right. And it'd be so hard, even if you knew it was like 25 years. Yeah. Not to like start planning out that last week of your life. Yeah. And spending all of your waking hours thinking about that. Mm-hmm. It'd, be, it'd be so hard to like develop new relationships, like knowing that we're expiring, especially as that time got shorter. Right. So like you're almost like like falling in love to hurt someone, that type of thing. It it would it would it would feel like almost malicious. Yeah. Where it's just like, hey, I have feelings for you, you have feelings for me, but I literally only have twelve years and three months. Yeah. That's scary, right? Yeah. It seems shitty. All right. Well, we're off to record a new poker out loud session. And then after that we're headed to Austin. After that there is an April Cash Academy. How many seats we got? One. There's one seat. I don't got any phone calls. So if you want that seat, my phone number is... Come on, man. thought I was going to give my phone number. 201-397-5... No, but honestly, if you want the seat, hit us up. There's one seat left. I might double the price for that last seat. It's like the airplane. It's like if you there's one seat left and you need to go to something, I'm, I'm racking up the price, man. This is like United or whatever, you know? I mean, we'll have another one. In another the what? Yeah, in Academy. the future. Yeah, there's another flight tomorrow, too. There's a, like, <laughs> if, you, if you want to wait, that's fine. But sure. generally speaking, if you want to get good now, if you want to beat people now, if you want to learn about all this stuff now, 3500 plus taxes <laughs> and a tip. Sure. Uh, but I'm looking forward to that one. I feel like they've gotten better. Like this year has been like the strongest year of the academies just because I feel like we've 
just learned so much throughout the last 12 months. And like, it's, it's nice that we're, invo- we're evolving with the teaching methods and teaching methodologies of like what people are consuming outside and they're kind of having a more focused, sorry, I'm sorry to myself. They're having a more focused approach when they arrive here and the instruction is really strong. I think. Yeah. I think that the fact that we're able to get a hold of people so much further in advance now and give them, you know, the primer course and these baseline metrics. And a lot of them are now coming from the TV sites. So they already have some familiarity. It allows us to skip through some of the broad strokes. And uh, it's really allowed us to like drill into the the basic principles. That, that was the other thing with the weight skin podcast. Uh, I mean, there's so much of it that like resonates with what I feel like our methodology is here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a particular clip where he's talking about foil boarding uh, which is effectively a surfboard that's like elevated three feet out of the water and uses a fin to navigate. And he's talking about uh, how you can train into these things called boils and and boils are like swirls in the wave that will like just throw you. They're very unpredictable uh, on the surface. They look very chaotic. But as you train into them, you recognize like that it becomes very predictable the ways in which uh, they'll they'll tumble you uh, one way or the other. And the, the second thing he talked about was like learning how to fall and basically yeah. treat, uh, teaching yourself to, uh, to navigate these falls in a way that is um, not only predictable, but uh, I, I guess like teachable, learnable, right? Yeah. And it reminds me so much of poker because on the surface, it's such a chaotic system. Uh, it just looks like it's unable to be reined in but you know if we just get down to the core principles learning how to fall learning how to fail right Mm -hmm. and we recognize like this isn't just a problem for us it's a problem for the the collective and the faster we learn how to fail and how to get out of failure the quicker we'll be able to recognize like how to capitalize on others failures and how to predictably uh attack those failures so uh i think that there's a lot um, to unpack from that pod that was really great. I think that it all kind of like resonates with our evolution here, um, especially with the way that the broad strokes haven't changed. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about equity realization and equity capitalization from day one. Yeah. Right. We're just framing it a lot better now by being able to attribute bet sizing, by being able to attribute frequencies, by being able to attribute all of these technical elements of the game and uh using like this thematic approach where it's like okay well we have this umbrella of realization and capitalization now let's see where all of these uh mechanics fit underneath that umbrella and try to align them in a one-to-one kind of way i think josh waitkinson can come on the podcast he seems like a good guy sure sure what does he even what is he what he's just like a myth like a a person in the world that we you're not familiar with him at all Nah, I know I don't know anything. I know I okay. from the podcast I know that he secludes himself now into a mountain and, sure. <laughs> and nobody can reach him. And you have to go through like five assistants to like there's like one person that can touch him. Like, okay. So he was a childhood chess prodigy mm-hmm. uh who later just became kind of a prodigy in learning as a whole. Mm-hmm. So he wrote the book The Art of Learning. He effectively outlined uh the mental model necessary in order to be, to like master anything you desire. So he was a chess prodigy first, then he was um, a martial art prodigy. I think he won world champions in, uh, I always want to call it slap hands, mm. but it's uh, uh, effectively, oh, push hands is okay. what it is. Um, and then he became uh, a world champion in another variety of martial arts. Now he's taking up like foil boarding and uh, all these other different things. So effectively, he's just a guy whose lifelong pursuit is to optimize learning. And he seems to have done a really good job. The Art of Learning is a fantastic read. It's very short. Uh, I listened to it on Audible probably in like a day. Okay. Uh, highly recommend checking it out. Very much a expert, let's say, on, on learning models. So Josh, I know you're going to listen to this. Sure. Being that he has no social and... Exactly. He has more time to go on the number one platform for broadcasting, mm. which is YouTube, which is this is where it's going to be. It might be on Stitch or whatever whatever platform you listen to. But we're in Google around here. So 
when you listen to this, Josh, you're welcome to the podcast at any time. We'll pull up a third chair for you. I'm not going to kick anybody out here, especially not myself. But I thought it was a great podcast. I, I looking forward to hearing more about him. And I thought it was very influential to both our approach and also kind of gave credence to the way that we teach, which I thought was was really nice. So if you haven't checked, if you haven't checked that out, I think it was the latest episode on the Tim Ferriss podcast. And now we're off. I'll see you all next week with my food, with my regimen, with maybe a cold water plunge. I'm scared. Polar bear chin. Baby elephant. Good night and good luck.